We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. As always, stay tuned to the end of the interview where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes over at theentrepreneurethos.com. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for the ratings and reviews. Thanks for the retweets. Thanks for the emails. Thanks for the shares. Thanks for everything. Now, on to my guest for today, Tim Young. CEO of Naturally Grateful, Small Farm Nation, and Techmar Communications, and author of several books, including Accidental Farmers and Start Prepping. Tim first built a career in marketing, first as a division head of a Fortune 500 company, and then as a founder and CEO of his own marketing services firm for tech companies. After 22 years, though, he realized he had a longing to do something else, and finally settled on trying his hand at farming. He and his wife bought land in Georgia and started a livestock farm. Tim even learned to make artisan cheese and earned awards for it. But when he and his wife had their daughter, they decided they wanted to have more time to focus on her. They scaled back, turning to homesteading and homeschooling. Tim describes how he and his daughter have a daily practice of writing something they are grateful for on this big gratitude tree on the wall. It was one day after doing this when Tim and his daughter began talking about ideas for a business as a learning project that they came up with the idea of an apparel company featuring slogans about gratitude. That grew into the family-run company they now call Naturally Grateful. Now, let's get better together. Tim Young. Welcome to the podcast. Jerry, thank you very much. I'm, I'm happy to be with you. Well, I'm happy to have you because you are running a pretty darn cool business called Naturally 
Grateful, which you actually just changed the name <laughs> to. So <laughs> I cannot wait to hear that story. And you actually run this really cool apparel kind of company with your wife and your daughter, which is so cool that you're like trying to, you know, educate and inspire, you know, your daughter to be an entrepreneur, or at least this is what an entrepreneur is. And this is how, you know, you can have some impact in the world because you're a very mission-driven company, which is really cool. And then we were talking a little bit before we hit record that you actually were doing the big time entrepreneur stuff coming out to the Valley and all that where I am back in the day. So back in the day, (laughs) can't wait to hear about the transition from Silicon Valley startup to farmer and homesteader, which is the coolest thing in the world. I mean, I'll be full, full disclosure. I bought a piece of land in California about an hour, about two and a half hours away from where I live, 20 acres, right? It's raw land and uh, trying to figure out what to do with it. Um, (laughs) And it's pretty cool and pretty scary. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Nothing scarier than a raw piece of land at all. Yeah, it's 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 pretty cool. I've got some really cool neighbors around me, so I'm really grateful for that. And they are like, "Oh yeah, we've been here 20 years. We built up our land. We, we got all the cool tricks and tips and what to avoid." And I'm like, "Yeah, but there's no septic. There's no water. There's no power. Yep. It's yep. just a bunch of oak trees and some pasture. So it's pretty cool. So absolutely. Why don't you tell us how you got to do what you're doing today?" Yeah, so this business, Naturally Grateful, that I've got now, uh, this actually germinated in our homeschool room. And as you said, you know, I've got a um, a nine-year-old daughter now. She was eight years old when we came up with this idea. Now, my wife does most of the homeschooling. I'm very fortunate that, you know, she has a teaching background and and we just embrace homeschooling, you know, from the very beginning. So, that's given what happened with COVID last year, that was a very good thing because it didn't have much of an impact on our life personally. Thank goodness. We just kept on homeschooling and staying at home. But what I did with her last year, my daughter was um, I taught her one day a week. And one of the things I focused on was business and entrepreneurship. Uh, Basically my goal with her is that when she becomes an adult, I want her to have the confidence and the skills to do whatever she wants to do. I mean, we all know if you want to get a job, you can get a job. If you want to go to college, you can go to college, but not everybody feels comfortable, as you know, in starting a business. Most people in the in the population are intimidated by something like that, and I want her to have that behind her by the time she gets to that age. Now, as you just pointed out with my background, you know, I've done everything from starting a pasture-based farming business to starting a high-tech marketing services agency to being president of a division of a Fortune 500 company. So you can be an entrepreneur in any sector. Once you learn the confidence and skills to start something, it doesn't really matter whether it's a restaurant or whether it's a, an apparel business or whether it's um, you know a PR firm. Uh, many of those same skills are applicable. And the way that this particular business that we have going now started is um, in that morning session with my daughter, we had just finished writing on our gratitude tree. Now, the gratitude tree is a thing on the wall I have where we start each day by writing a note of what we're feeling grateful for. And the whole point of that exercise is um, to help her take a moment and feel some gratitude for the conveniences and the modernities that we have in our life and all the great things that we have, and just to reflect on that rather than take it for granted. 
Well, this particular day, we followed that up with going into a, a session where I wanted her to write a business plan. Now, rather than giving her an intimidating business plan, I had scripted out a 10-question business plan I wanted her to write. And I sat with her as we did this. And, and I had no preconceived notion at all of what we would do here. But the idea was that she and I would come up with a business idea that we would present to mom and we would start a family business together. This way, over the next several years, I could make sure that she actually got to put into practice all the skills needed to take an idea from conception to implementation uh, to go on a market and everything in between. So since we had just finished the gratitude tree, one of the things that we talked about with our idea is that it felt really good to be grateful about whatever we were talking about that day. And so the, the, the idea was, is there any way that we can help other people feel the joy that comes from being truly grateful? Because our conclusion was that it's impossible to be truly grateful and unhappy at the same time. If you're truly grateful about something, it means you're at a state where you're really content, you're really happy, you really recognize all that you have in life, and you're not thinking about all those things that you don't have in life. So once we had that idea of that's what we'd like to accomplish, you know, there's a number of ways we could think about doing that. But the idea that germinated from that was let's start an apparel business with designs about gratitude, with messages of thankfulness and kindness and gratitude. And we developed a mission statement of, can we spread gratitude by wearing gratitude? And that's where the idea of the business came from. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, I took a look at your site beforehand and all the cool little tees and backpacks and hats. And it's really... And don't forget and don't forget face mask. <laughs> oh, face mask. Yes, that's true. Don't forget face mask. That's very important <laughs> since we're still going through the challenges of COVID and trying to sort all that out. Oh, wow. I mean, so this is actually this tree is a is a physical thing on a wall and you guys write what your you know your gratitudes or what you're grateful for every day. Is it every day? Or? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we, we last year we actually did like a gratitude jar. These are common things that some people do with their kids and stuff, particularly at homeschool. Um I wanted to actually put a gratitude tree on the wall in my office. Actually, um, I wrote an entire blog post with pictures about this. I'll be glad to send you a link if you want to share oh, that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But, um, if you, yeah, on the uh, on the blog on Naturally Grateful, there is actually a blog post with photos of the tree and how we created it. But yeah, it's I wouldn't say it's life size, but it's six feet tall. And so what we do is like we cut out uh, pieces of colored paper shaped like leaves, and then in the morning we'll, I'll write down what she'll write down. Uh, what she's grateful for or what I'm grateful for. And we stick it up on the wall. And then by the end of the year, we can look back and, you know, see a hundred things that we were grateful for that year. Wow. Yeah. That's a very powerful thing. My, uh, my fiance and I and her daughter, um, we sometimes, we used to do this more often that we don't do it much anymore. Although I think <laughs> for the last couple of weeks, I should do this more. We would say, okay, what are the five things that we're, you know, that, that, that we're grateful for today. Right. And, right. you know, so every night for a while, especially just when the pandemic started, we started to do this. And it's interesting because it sort of changes your mindset of, you know, we as humans are very much attracted to negativity because it's a threat response. We're like, oh, there's a danger. Like we are hypersensitive to danger, but yet when the good things in our life that are going the way they should, or that we're thankful for, or grateful for, um, they tend to get down in the weeds so that you can't, you don't really, you get almost paralyzed by the bad 
and as you start to really talk about what you're grateful for or thankful for or whatever you want to call it, you're, you start to look at things a little differently. And I'm curious, has that changed sort of the way you, you and your daughter and your family and even your business um, operate? I mean, it must be very, I don't know. It would be pretty cool to like see this six foot tree full of water. Like, wow, we're a great, there's a lot of things we're grateful for. Well, you know, one, you know, I spent a lot of time with her, uh, probably too much time talking about the fundamentals because mm-hmm. you're totally right that humans are kind of wired towards to have our antenna up mm-hmm. for where are the threats. So if you're thinking about threats, it means that you're thinking about something that's uh, dangerous or scary, therefore negative. And so we look for those things. We're also, we also seem to be wired to take things for granted. So whatever we have, I mean, mm-hmm. for example, if you can breathe well, like you and I can, yeah. then we take for granted that we're going to be able to breathe well today. I mean, now that's different if you have asthma or if you have a, a condition where it's hard for you to breathe, you don't think that way, but most of us don't worry about that. It's, likewise, you don't really think anything about going into your kitchen and turning on the faucet. You yeah. don't take a minute to reflect on how flipping amazing that is. <laughs> that water <laughs> flows out of the faucet. <laughs> and, and, not, and not only that, you can make hot water flow out of the faucet. It's ridiculously amazing, but the very few people take the time to really think about things like that because let's face it i mean in in first world nations you know we all have those kind of things so we don't think about that so you know we write we write about other things and we say oh maybe i got this promotion so i'm grateful for that or whatever and we're thinking about these things that really have nothing to do with the basics i'm really fortunate i believe that i that i stay grounded in the very basic things i I marvel at the fact, you know, I, I think a lot about history. Mm. I've been reading the last couple of years with my daughter, a lot mm. of the classic literature. So we read, we read the Iliad, we read the Odyssey. We read a lot about, you know, the Romans and the Greeks and, and everything else. And yeah. so as I'm reading some of these books to her, I'm talking about, you know, they didn't have any toilets back then or any running water. <laughs> and we read about these pharaohs. And I say, you know, if we went back and just say, I said, hey, hey, pharaoh. Let me show you what I can do. I, I got a light switch. <laughs> you know, all, it would be ma- the, you would be burned at the stake as a witch or something. Abs- right? Absolutely, <laughs> I'd be burned at the stake after after I showed him how to do it. Now, of course, that brings up the other problem in our civilization. None of us know how to do anything that's other than true. the light switch. Well, that's true. No, it's. Yeah. I mean, I love that you brought up the classics of literature because my fiance's daughter, she's twelve. I mean, she just consumes that stuff. She loves like reading so much. And it's really great because, you know, history, I I think, you know, as I get older, I I tend to like want to really understand the world and from a historical perspective. And and what what got me on this thread when you just said that is I was, uh, you know, like Afghanistan, we just got out of the 20 year war out of Afghanistan and how you feel about that or not is I think irrelevant to the fact of history as well as what you were talking about gratitude. I mean, you know, we're lucky here in the U S that we have running water. We have these great things. And you just look at the, the challenges that a country like Afghanistan is trying to go through. And you just look at those people and, you know, your heart breaks for the challenges and struggles they face yet you know, here, boy, we have so much to be thankful for. And that's just so powerful. And history shows that, right? I mean, like you were talking about pharaohs and, right. you know, kings and all these like real 
challenging times in the world where, yeah, they would, you know, do all even even a hundred hundred years ago here. <laughs> Absolutely, but you know, so. but 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 here's the problem. I mean, I totally agree with you with what you said about for, you gave Afghanistan as an example. So, mm. from an American point of view, I see things the same way you do. But yet, if you look at the science, and I've watched some documentaries on this, where there's people in what we would call third world countries where maybe there's a guy and he's living in, I don't know if it's Bangladesh or where, but living in an absolute, what we would call a shack with yeah. a tarp over it with maybe six kids. And his job is he's out, you know, running a taxi cart. So by hand, he's picking up the cart and he's, you know, moving people around in it. But the science shows that he, people like that are happier than the average American. Yeah, and this this is the problem that we're I'm trying to get to, and yeah. why is that? And of course, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a I'm not into the data. I don't understand what those causes are, but I do know that if we find ways as individuals to just stop and reflect on how absolutely fortunate we are to be alive where we are at this time in history, with all the conveniences that we have right now, you can't be anything but happy and grateful. Now, if you get that raise, great. If you get the bigger car, great. If that's what you want. If you get the better job, fantastic. But you don't need any of it to be happy. And that's what the, the science shows us about these other countries that we look at and go, wow, how could they possibly be happy? Well, they have a lot less stuff and they also have a lot less worries because yeah. what they have is right in front of them. Yeah. With more stuff becomes more worry. And with, you know, it's a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up because I think, you know, excuse me, as entrepreneurs, <clears throat> we sometimes chase the fame, fortune, prestige, big exit, billion dollar company, you know, all the trappings of success where, you know, those are fleeting and literally out of our control. Like I, it's just a random, I wouldn't say it's almost, yeah, no, it's random. <laughs> it's random. It is. There's, a lot, on, there's a lot of it's random. It's like I'm a hard, hard work and opportunity and your skills have to match, but boy, it's just hard. It's a hard gig to do. Um, and I think that's why that this internal mindset of I'm doing it for the right reasons. I'm having joy and happiness and gratitude for the journey I'm on and really, you know, trying to be fulfilled without those external trappings. Like I, I think, I think you nailed it. I think, I think part of the reason why people here in the U S for whatever reason are not happy, as you mentioned, the guy in Bangladesh it's one, it's perspective. Like the guy in Bangladesh is probably just happy that he's a family and eating and he, you know, they've got challenges there. Don't get me wrong, but right. here, I think we're just not, we don't see those daily challenges. So right. we don't appreciate what we truly well, have, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing too, of course, you know, economically, if you, if you were, we'll take that Bangladesh example again, I'm not sure if that's where it was or not, but from a, from an economy point of view, we live all of us, everyone that's probably listening to this lives in a consumption economy. Right. Our entire economy wires us all to be weapons of mass consumption. Mm. So it's great that I have a TV, but my goodness, it's two years old and it's only 50 inches. Don't they have something newer and better now that I should be right. looking at? <clears throat> and so capitalism forces us, you know, maybe inadvertently, but it still forces us all down a path of being ungrateful because mm. what we're all focused on think think about it this way whether you are the ceo of a fortune 500 company or whether you're an entrepreneur of a startup <clears throat> you start something you run something and you just had great success this quarter but you've got to focus on next quarter and you got to focus on getting more and getting bigger and beating competition and it's great that you did that but 
you know, that's what you did yesterday. You now have to do more. If you're an individual, what kind of car do your neighbors drive? Maybe you should have that kind of car or a better car. How big is their house? Maybe your house should be bigger. Maybe they have a boat. Maybe you need a boat. And there's this innate sense of competition from a consumption point of view that weaves its way through the tapestry of America and Western nations that forces us all to be always focused on what we don't have. Whereas gratitude is all about focusing on what you do have. And if you can invert that mindset and start thinking about, man, let's go back to the example again. I've got running water. I've got a 911 number. Somebody can come help me if I need it. I I mean, this is all amazing stuff. It is. It is. I mean, and yeah, and I do, you know, it's actually a really good point about capitalism. I, I haven't thought about it that way. Although, yeah, I mean, growth is sort of the engine that drives capitalism. I mean, there's also, of course, the ability to create companies and, you know, be more, um, sure. you know, and, and, but in the word capitalism, it's capital that grows things as opposed to socialism or communism or others, which, you know, you can debate the goodness and badness of any of them, but chances are that, you know, through history and just reading about all the stuff that capitalism is probably the best one we've found so far. Absolutely. Because, yeah. uh, you know, there's there's the freedom to operate as well as the freedom for individual communities to really figure out what's valuable. And that's why it's so fascinating that you kind of left the kind of corporate big company gig. And now you're a homesteader, I guess, yeah. also a farmer, right? Well, I, I, I did. I, yeah, the quick background is I spent 13 years with a Fortune 500 company that was then a Fortune 500 company. My last eight years, I was a division president of uh, one of their direct marketing businesses. I left that and did a startup that was a one-person startup, me. And then five years later, we were 450 employees in six countries. And that was a marketing services firm that uh, supported uh, technology companies you know, like SAP and Cisco and Intel, firms like that. But I found after you know that 20, 22-year period or whatever, those two businesses, <clears throat> that I had a longing. Uh, it was, you know, it didn't really make a lot of sense to be honest with you, but it was just difficult for me to, to describe to like my mother or to a kid what it was I did. And I could totally describe to you because you've got a PR and a marketing background, you understand this stuff. But to a lot of people, I could be on an elevator and they say, what do you do? And it's like, well, you know, we build database marketing, you know, for, you know, high tech companies, we help them with, you know, lead qualification or lead generation or things like that. And it's just boring stuff. And it might be where there's money, but it also wasn't something that was soul satisfying. So I was looking for something that was more meaningful. And the 180 I took was, I said, well, you know, why don't we just buy 126 acres out in the middle of nowhere and go start a farm? Now, a little bit of uh, background. This was in the midst of uh, Food Inc. and the Omnivore's Dilemma and all kinds of, uh, you know, Michael Pollan's work. Yeah, and work about Pollan's great, great author. Yeah, reconnecting with where your food comes from. So rather than do something sensible, like a <laughs> farmer's market. <laughs> I mean, I could have just gone to a farmer's market. Exactly, you know, you could have, yeah. We went and bought land and had never farmed before. And, you know, a year later we had, you know, a hundred, you know, cat, cattle. We had Murray Gray registered beef cattle. Uh, we had 24 Jersey cows. We had, you know, thousands of chickens. We were raising pigs in the woods. Um, later we started milking the cows and I learned to make artisan cheese and actually made some 
artisan cheese that won awards at the United States Cheese Championship and the American Cheese Society and really enjoyed doing that kind of stuff because I could explain to a kid, you know, what do you do? Hey, I'm a farmer. I'm a cheesemaker. Now, not quite as much money in that racket, but a lot more satisfaction when you're, you know, doing regenerative agriculture and you're healing the earth and you're liberating the animals and trying to give the animals a good life on pasture versus, you know, supporting only, you know, feedlot operations, which I prefer to not support. So that was more satisfying for us. But, and we did that for seven years, uh, seven or eight years. Uh, But when my daughter was born in 2012, we decided that we really wanted to re-engineer our lives so that we had maximum time with her. And the problem with farming is, you know, we, we're dealing with the public at all times. We wanted to do all the farming stuff, but we wanted to do it more for us rather than for everyone else. And that's really what a homesteader is. So we kind of, you know, pulled back, um, got a smaller piece of land, about 60 acres, uh, set it up to, you know, have our own cows, have our own rabbits, have our own chickens, have our own pigs and stuff, grow our own food in the garden. But, you know, do things for us than for other people and commit ourselves to homeschooling and educating her. And that's how we kind of got to where we are now. Yeah. I mean, farming's legit, hard, blue collar work ethic to the extreme. I mean, I, you th- I mean, any tech entrepreneur thinks that starting a company's hard, try farming. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It, but it's you the know, most the, insane thing. You know, the, the, the irony is that a lot of people who were doing the kind of farming that I was doing, you know, the kind of a, a farming that Joel Salatin inspired in the Omnivore's Dilemma, the pasture-based farming. Yeah. A lot of these people are people that came from other jobs. They, get, they came from the rat race and they're disenfranchised and they wanted to start a farm. Well, what they are all learning and what they've all learned, and I, I quote I quote this and say this all the time, in my opinion, successful farming, that type of farming is 80% marketing and 20% farming. I mean, anybody, you will learn how to move your cows. You will learn how to do rotational grazing. You will learn how to pasture manage. You'll learn those things, but learning how to define your market to build your website, to master social media marketing, to master master content marketing so you can do better at search engine optimization so that you can be found so that you can actually attract the tribe of customers, learning how to be good at PR, how to create sound bites so that people want to follow you as a farmer. That's the stuff that everybody struggles with. And that's what they're finding out. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like any business. I mean, right. it just so happens that farming, the elements can play havoc against you because obviously you're beholden on nature to a certain degree. Um, and, but yeah, I mean, it's all fundamental business stuff, but, you know, tack on the, <laughs> you know, taming nature kind of <laughs> aspect of it. It, it mean, is, it is fundamental business stuff, but here's the weird thing about farming crazy. again, in, in my experience is that when you start a business, let's say in your case, you start a PR or marketing firm, or let's say in someone else's case, they say, I want to go start a dry cleaning business. In both cases, they're going to sit down and either write down a business plan or they're going to conceptualize one in their head. And they're going to think about, okay, who's my market going to be? Who are my customers going to be? How am I going to get them? And all this kind of stuff. And they're going to make sure it makes sense. And then they're going to act on the strategy to go and get market share. Well, there are so many people that get sick of their jobs. They watch Food Inc. and they go, damn it, I want to go be a farmer. And then they go start a farm. No one ever says, hey, I want to go start a dry cleaning business. So I'm just going to go start one. So a lot of the business planning and the market planning doesn't happen 
with a lot of the small farms. Yeah, no, totally true. Totally true. Are you, uh, this is totally random, but do you, have you ever heard of Top Gear? Mm, I've heard the name, but I can't really comment on it. So I'm not familiar. Yeah. So, so Top Gear is a British car show. Hmm. And uh, it was on BBC for a long time, I think 17 years. Then it moved to Amazon and something called the Grand Tour, which um, was the three original um, hosts of it. Uh, James May, uh, Richard Hammond, and Jeremy Clarkson. And so that season, that series ended, and then Jeremy Clarkson gets a TV show called Clarkson's Farm, where he buys a farm. <laughs> they film him. Like, <laughs> this is in England, right? And this guy's a gearhead. So when it comes to cars, like if you're a gearhead, you know Top Gear. And I don't even like to drive. It's just so weird that I love the show, but I just love the, the reverence of it. But then he's got his own show about his, he's building a farm. <laughs> and I'm just like, this is insane. <laughs> well, you, you've got, you've got, you've got 20 acres. Maybe we'll be filming at your place. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. 20 <laughs> acres is nothing compared to, to farm anything. I mean, I don't think I could barely get, you know, barely get anything on it, but yeah, it's so, so fascinating because you see, and, and is it, I mean, so, so you said your wife's got a, like a background in education. So when, when, you know, when you guys were young and doing, doing your thing was, what did she do? What was her kind of vocation? Yeah. So she has a master's in special education and she was teaching uh, first grade, you know, that, that level of special ed. And, you know, she's, you know, wired that way. And, you know, the opposite of me from an entrepreneurial point of view, I'm the one that I'm the destructive person that creates, you know, complete chaos. You know, there's nothing here today. I have an idea and then boom, all of a sudden there is something. And then, and then there's a mess everywhere. She's the kind of person that is the opposite of me, but works alongside. And then, well, let me see if I can straighten up the mess and organize things and make some order out of the chaos. So yeah, she, she is wired to be a teacher and she's fantastic at it. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's forming your own company. I mean, usually, you know, I've, I've interviewed a couple of couples that have formed their own company, usually tech startups. Right. Um, and is it, do you think that the best kind of couple entrepreneur, what are sort of the traits that you think kind of when you're assessing this, if you're like, Hey, I want to go into business with my spouse, what are some of the things that you think are good, you know, good complementary skills or like, how, how did you guys sort of sort through that? Well, you sure as hell better get along all the time. I tell you, that. <laughs> That's um, true. you know, That's true. I think, I think a lot of people would start a business and they would think about what their business needs. So I'm starting a business. Um, I'm, I am filling this role maybe of sales or marketing or engineering or whatever it is. I need someone else to fill this role of operations or customer service or whatever. My husband or spouse has those skills. Let's do that. We didn't, we don't approach anything that way. We didn't approach the farm that way when we farmed together and we didn't approach this business that way. This is going to sound, you know, mushy and ridiculous, you know, to a lot of people, but we just like being together at all times, uh -huh. which is why we live this lifestyle. I mean, it's why I've, I've worked for, from home for 20 years now. I mean, we spend literally all of our time together. I mean, if you've never done that, you have no idea how, you know, what that, that is like. I mean, it's like you, we, we're, we teach our daughter. Our daughter doesn't leave the house for the most part, unless we all go somewhere together. When we go somewhere, we all go together. Right. So it's, it's ridiculous. So for us to work together, it makes perfect sense because we really enjoy being together. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that you can't create stressful moments. When we were working together on the farm, 
I created stressful moments for us because that's what chaotic creators do. You know, you're, you're, Hey, well, I'm going to learn how to make cheese. Well, we've never done that before. That's okay. I'll sink 50 grand into the milking parlor or to the dairy or whatever. <laughs> and I'm going to start this up, which, which wired like you, you know, that's like, oh, that's nothing. That's not a big deal. You, that, you just that's do it. me. That's me in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's every entrepreneur. You don't yeah. think it, you, you instantly size it up in your head and go, yeah, this makes sense. I'm going to do it to another person. They want to know, well, shouldn't you have spent a couple of years thinking about that? <laughs> That's ridiculous. Yeah. So, but when you do that, you know, you get it started, you do things and you find out later, well, I guess we need some help packaging this stuff. I never really think about that. So that's where the other person comes in and hopefully has a complementary skill set. So I would think if a husband and wife or two partners had the same skill set, boy, I would think there'd be some trouble in that uh, business marriage. I think you want to have very different skill sets. Yeah. The complementary skill set. Yeah. That's, that's what I've heard from others as well. I mean, it's just interesting. You got to clearly get along and want to be, <laughs> want to be working together and be together. Uh, Cause it's a, it's a long haul to, to start something. And mm. yeah, I love, I love when you're just like, yeah, I'm going to make cheese. I'll just spend 50 grand on the machinery. I, that's what I would do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it was, and it, and it paid off. It was good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the risk we take as entrepreneurs, right? I mean, right. it's just time and money. I got, you know, right. not a big deal. Like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? How, you know, like, yeah, sort of right. like building the airplane as you fall out of the sky is, <laughs> is always the analogy people use. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah. It's really cool though. I mean, cause it's interesting that this kind of movement, I think, and maybe just cause I've now bought land and I'm thinking more about it and, you know, I'm, 50 now. And so, you know, you kind of want to like, what's the next kind of stage of your life. And, but I do think this whole idea of being, you know, resilient and self-sufficient and learning skills and, you know, kind of this idea of where things come from. And, and I, and I, I really like this concept and I've always tried to do this. I mean, although I live in a city, so it's harder for me to do, but um, I'm curious, is that, been like a good kind of grounding for your family and for you? Or do you just like, how, how would you like, I'll give you an example. So let's say, okay, hey, Tim, I'm going to start a farm. <laughs> what, if, <laughs> now what, what should I do differently than you did? And or like, how, how would I engage with that process of, and I always think of it as more like this I always say like, it's the blue collar work ethic that really makes entrepreneurs successful. It's really not what you know. I mean, you have to be trainable and you have to know some things, but boy, it's just like, for whatever reason, we've lost this blue collar work ethic. And I'm just curious how, what advice would you give someone about like that, bringing it back to kind of the self-sufficiency, this, yeah, this blue collar work ethic. Yeah, I mean, I think the person's got to start by figuring out what it is that they are worried about or what they want. Now, of course, you know, I do have a farming background and a homesteading background, and I'm pretty in-depth knowledgeable about all those things. But I also, you know, I wrote a book several years ago called Start Prepping, um, because I'm also at heart a prepper, but not a doomsday prepper like the world's about to end. I'm a prepper in the sense that every time I drive my car, I have a spare tire in it. Not because I expect to have a flat tire, but because if I do have a flat tire, 
I want to have a spare tire. So if you take that line of thinking and extend it, well, maybe I should also have some water put away, or maybe I should also, as it turned out last year, I had, you know, boxes of N95 face masks because we bought those years ago, because, you know, people who are prepared, you know, are always thinking about things like pandemics are coming. So of course, when COVID happened, as bad as it was for the country, you know, it just had zero impact on people like me. So back to your question, the person would want to think about, is, is my objective to be a prepared person and be resilient? So that's really more what's you're thinking about self-reliance and resilience, or is my objective to have the skills to be self-sufficient and I want to do these things? If, if it's the former and you live in the city, you can be, you can live in the city or you can live, you know, in an urban area and be prepared. It doesn't mean that you have to have a doomsday bunker or none of that nonsense. I certainly, I, I certainly don't, I certainly don't have that, uh, you know, but it does mean that you can think about, okay, well, what are the things that are likely to happen in your life that you'd want to be prepared for? <clears throat> when I wrote start prepping, I think I listed 23 things that are, here's 23 things to prepare for. Cause people always ask, what are they, you know, should I prepare? prepare for the asteroid. No, the first thing is prepare for job loss. So you're going to lose your job or somebody's going to lose your job. Second thing to prepare for is a death in the family. I mean, how do you do that? But these are third thing you prepare for is what if there's a house fire? I mean, so there's, and of course, (laughs) you you know what I'm talking about. So well, it's just, man, there's, there's a number of things that you think about here linearly, like, okay, how do I create the point of preparing isn't to say you're prepared. The point of preparing is to become resilient because if you have a family, you know, uh, whether you're a mother or your father, we all have responsibilities to our family. Yeah. So my responsibility, the responsibility I feel is to make sure I've got them prepared to keep them safe under as many circumstances as I can foresee. Uh, even if you don't have kids, you know, you got a responsibility to yourself and to your, to your spouse or your partner. Yeah. Now, if, if that's not the mindset that you're after, if you're not really worried about prepping, but you want to learn the skills, then yeah, you don't have to start a farm for that. Even in San Francisco, you know, you can take classes on yeah. how can I, how can I tan a deer hide? Um, how can I learn how to can meat? How can I learn how to make cheese? Can I take a cheese making class or whatever it is that you want to do? I want to take a butchering class. I, I used to offer whole hog butchering classes on the farm to teach people how to make charcuterie and how to yeah. butcher a pig. Not yeah. that any of them were ever going to butcher a pig, but they wanted the skills and experience to do that. Yeah, no, there's a place in Oakland called the Crucible. Hmm. I've taken a bunch of welding classes there. Yeah, um, there you, and go. It's, you know, MIG welding, TIG welding, and acetylene arc welding, or acetylene welding, sorry. And oh, also like stick welding. And, hmm. you know, I, I've, I, have a, I have this dream of like building furniture, you know, metal and wood furniture. So I have to learn how to weld. But, <laughs> you know, it's interesting because the, um, those skills are directly, in my opinion, directly applicable, like learning those trades, directly applicable to pretty much any kind of business setting, in my opinion, because it's a skill you're learning and you're applying a, tra- a craft and you have to practice the craft to get better. And what's funny when you mentioned those, those, those first three things that you just mentioned about what it's preparing for, I've gone through all three of those. Oh, I've, I've lost my job for sure. My wife died, Jane. She died four and a half years ago. Hmm. And literally last week, I had a fire in my apartment. I'm actually in a new apartment right now because I can't live in the old one. Hmm. And I am not like a prepper type person. I'm not, you know, like I'm interested in it. I've got books on it. I read about it. And it's not that I think the world's going to end like you, like 
doom and gloom or whatever. But I know for a fact that my ability to be resilient and those three things, which I've all dealt with, was because I trained and prepared a mindset of I am not going to be, if I need a piece of equipment or I need to know what to do, I need to practice that. And so best example, last week, 2 a.m. on a Tuesday, fire alarm goes off, walk out of my bedroom, and there's a fire in my living room. And I'm like, oh my God, what do I do? Like, and, well, and the good news was you recognized it for what it was. And the reality is a lot of people don't. They see that and they kind of go into this paralysis analysis, this shock. They can't believe yeah, it yeah. and they don't move. I mean, I remember when I was writing Start Prepping, when I did the research into um, airplane crashes, because we all hear airplane crash and you just assume, okay, yeah. everybody's going to die. Well, you know, 90% of people in plane crashes survive. Yeah, yeah. And if you go back and look at the data since the 50s, it's like, it's overwhelming, you know, the number of people that survive plane crashes. But when you look at the ones that have a lot of fatalities, a lot of times what happens is they survive the crash and people are literally sitting in their seats surrounded and engulfed by fire and they don't yeah. move because yeah. they can't think that this isn't really happening to me. Yeah. Yeah. So that totally. mindset is everything. Yeah. I mean, and the only reason why, I mean, one, you know, clearly the building was prepared, right? It had, you know, it's interesting because you know, fire here in San Francisco is an example. I mean, we are pretty in California and San Francisco in particular. It's funny. We do have a prepper resilience mindset because of the 1906 earthquake and fire that devastated the city. Right. And you, when you walk around San Francisco, if you, and if you ever are here and you notice, you will see these circular brick round circular brick things that are about 30 feet across. And if you just pay attention to the road, they're like every three or four blocks. Hmm. And you're like, what are these things, right? Like, what can they possibly be? And they're actually cisterns full of water. Because in 1906, what happened was the fire, the system for fire you know, suppression, the, the fire plugs, they failed. They all hmm. failed, except for one. And it's a very famous one down on Market Street. And every year they have a... a you know, they almost pay homage to the one that didn't fail. Right. But just imagine like in a city like San Francisco, we're so paranoid about what happened in 1906 that every three or four blocks, there is a cistern full of water that the fire department can use to put out a fire. I mean, hmm. that is, I mean, you think, oh, San Francisco, you know, liberal, progressive, whatever, but we also have earthquakes. Right. So we've got, you know, the neighborhood emergency response program that we, we do. Everyone should have at least 72 hours worth of food and water. And you think, oh, you're being paranoid. Well, it's an earthquake. It randomly happens. And we've had earthquakes, 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake. Great example. Bay Bridge collapses. Like, do you put, now what? I have. I was there. I mean, I was watching this, the World Series when it happened. We, we all were. Right, right. We all were, right? Yeah, and yeah. so... But the thing is, is what's interesting is that when your mindset is preparing for, you know, rare events, you, you, you start to think you're not paranoid. Like I'm not paranoid, right? I don't like, right. Oh, you know, the world's going to end, but I have water and I have food enough because I've been trained. I've been through earthquakes. And now with the fire thing, I mean, you know, my first reaction when I see this flame is like, Oh, I better get out of here. Yeah. So what I did was I went out in the hallway, grabbed the fire extinguisher 
And I know how to use a fire extinguisher because I've, I have actually have friends that are firemen and they've taught me and I've taken classes on how to use it. Never thought in a million years I'd ever use a fire extinguisher, but I learned how to use it, reacted, sprayed it down the area as best I could, opened the window and then left. Hmm. <laughs> but you're right. Like, I, I, and it's not that I'm like anyone special. Like I'm, I'm not, I was just the, the thing that was the, the attitude and the mentality to your point was. I'm thinking about these things that could happen that if they're rare events, this is the thing I think that people kind of get bent about. These are rare events. They hopefully will never happen to you. Like when, you know, when Jane died, she died of leukemia. I hope no one has to go through dealing with cancer or having a, you know, a loved one die. I mean, she was 36, right. That was Hmm. super, super young for that. And it was a really struggle for me, but my training in endurance athletics and my training and the support network we grew around has helped me through that. So yeah, it's, I don't I, I love, see, I love the prepper slash resilient mindset. I think more entrepreneurs actually need to be this way. I think they have to plan for the inevitable setback and the challenge and the struggle so they can work through it. And to your point, which is so perfect, not freeze in an emergency, like, right know what you need to do, get off the plane, (laughs) get the fire extinguisher, open the window, like make sure everyone's okay. Right. It's, it's a, it's a practicing. It actually doesn't take much practice. And I think it's really very, yeah, you're right. They, they tend to have a bad reputation as a doom and gloom in the bunker, but but there's always of, a there's always a few you know bad apples that will yeah. you know that will that you know that we all love to look at and make fun of. But yeah, back in my corporate days, you know, we called prepping you know uh, contingency plans and redundancy systems. You know, so okay, oh, yeah, yeah. That, that that makes me a prepper because I've got a backup data system in case this one goes down. Yeah, I mean, look at look at you mentioned you worked at Cisco. Um, my fiance works at Cisco, and they have a I think it's called. I don't remember the name of the term for it, but they have a team at Cisco of volunteers. That's their job is during the disaster to bring back up communications. Right. Mm, right. Okay. So, all right. Is that a little doom and gloom? No, because communications are critical nowadays. Right. So, but they also have to have, you know, business continuity. I mean, they're a worldwide multinational. If something goes wrong, you know, in new Orleans, like what happened, like communications is critical. So yeah, you know, even businesses preparing for the downside or preparing for challenges and struggles. I think more entrepreneurs need to just think about that and not like you said, in a negative Nelly, the world's going to (laughs) end. I'm going to build a bunker in my backyard, but more. um, I I just don't think there's a, I don't think there's a lot of downside. Yeah. I don't think being prepared. I agree. I agree. hundred percent agree with you. So how, what, so what, what questions do you think this next generation of entrepreneur should be asking themselves if they're sort of going to get into this entrepreneur game, so to speak? I mean, what, what, what are some of the things that, that they should ask questions about for themselves to see if it's right for them? Well, you know, you, you talk to so many people uh, in business and of course you, you've, you have received, I'm sure so many answers to this question. There's a lot of things you could think about, but if I was looking back you know, and talking to myself a lot younger, um, you know, this kind of soft question I'd ask myself is, you know, you're going to, I was so focused on growth and I was so focused on being successful and achieving and, you know, ma- making sure something worked. 
in my career, but I wasn't focused early on. Is this the thing? Are you doing the thing that makes you happy? Are you doing the thing that gives you joy that as a path to you being happy? Because when, when you're 22 or whatever age, you know, you start these things, you don't always think about that. You think about things like, okay, can I create something? Can I make it big? Can I make it impactful? Uh, can I make it successful? Can I get visibility? Can people see me? And those are all fine things, but none of those things by themselves, you know, is the road to happiness. So every person's got to find out, you know, what are, what is it that makes me happy? And am I taking a step with this new entrepreneurial endeavor that is taking me down a road where I can be happy? Wow, that's great. Yeah. And I would also say, uh, think about your contingencies. <laughs> I love that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to check your book out. Honestly, that's such a cool idea. Oh, happy, yeah, I'm happy to send you a copy. No yeah, problem. no, that's like, it's really great. And appreciate your time, Tim. Great, great company. Great story. Just, just a wonderful spirit of the, what we're trying to do with the entrepreneur ethos, you know, build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world through, you know, education and inspiring that next generation of entrepreneur. And you are educating your daughter in that, which is the coolest thing ever. So thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Best of luck to you. Thank you. Thanks, Tim, for the awesome conversation about being grateful and having gratitude. I think we all need a little more gratitude in our lives. I mean, boy, that would make the world a better place. So as always, here are some actionable insights that I learned from my interview with Tim. Practice gratitude. Nothing can help lift your spirits and give you perspective, like stopping and reflecting on what you're grateful for. And I think this is a great idea. I try to do this, and although sometimes I'm not successful, I always try to say what I'm thankful for, three or five things, hopefully try to every day, you know, knock on wood. Um, but that sets your mind in the right place place because we can get so overwhelmed with the negativity, especially when things are going wrong or we're in a pandemic or people are just generally a lot more anxious. I mean, you know, figure out what you're grateful for. Say it out loud. Ask what will make you happy. Any project you embark on should be in service of making yourself happy. Very important, especially in the entrepreneur game, right? This is a long journey Fulls of ups and downs, zigs and zags, all the things we talk about here. Um, you got to enjoy what you're doing. And if it doesn't make you happy, no amount of money is going to make you happy if you're miserable. So although money is important, boy, really, you got to like figure out what's going to make you happy in the long term. Embrace the chaos and be prepared. Tim shows how as a chaos creator, you know, entrepreneur, right? It's important to jump in and take risks. At the same time, he advises looking ahead and being prepared for what may come that is out of your control. Work on becoming both resilient and self-sufficient. Well, I mean, I totally resonate with that because, right, the entrepreneur ethos, how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world, right, through educating and inspiring the next generation of entrepreneurs, well, you got to be self-sufficient and resilient. You know, put your own oxygen mask on first before you help others. But more importantly, you can prepare for things to go wrong. Now, it doesn't mean you got to be negative, Nelly, greed, you know, look, that's 100% understand that. But in my own personal experience, 
not only like must have been like four weeks ago. I mean, thankfully, um, I you know had a fire in my apartment. Smoke alarm worked because someone checked it, and I got to use a fire extinguisher because one there was one there, and two I knew how to use it. So, how often am I going to do that? Hopefully, never again. But at least I had a little was prepared to know what to do when there was a fire. So, be prepared. So there you have it, the actionable insights that I learned from my excellent conversation with Tim. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur, and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA, and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.